Hello, Brad here. Just to say we're super proud that the Friday 5pm podcast is sponsored by the Malt Miller, the UK's best home brew store. We use the Malt Miller for all of our homebrew experiments, as well as tapping them up for advice and binging on their awesome YouTube channel all the time. That's why whenever we release a homebrew video, we put a recipe kit live on the Malt Miller, so you can brew with the exact same amazing ingredients that we did. The same ingredients used by pro brewers. So alongside the Malt Miller's nitro-flushed hops, cold-stored yeast and milled-to-order malts, you can pick up recipe kits for our Five Points Best Bitter, Russian River West Coast IPA, and now the fastest beer in the world, a hazy session IPA that goes from grain to glass in less than 48 hours. Sign up to their newsletter at tinyurl.com forward slash maltmiller to get 5% off your first order. With the Malt Miller's amazing customer service and Johnny's 48-hour recipe, you could order the ingredients on a Monday and be drinking the beer by the weekend. Speaking of which, it's Friday. It's 5pm. So enjoy this week's Friday 5pm podcast. I want to thank you, the people of this country, for the sheer grit and guts you've shown and are continuing to show. It is still true that this is the biggest single challenge this country has faced since the war. An unexpected and invisible mugger. Looking now at our apparent success. And sadly, of those in hospital with the virus, 20,319 have died. And there's a pattern emerging here. We were slow into lockdown, slow on testing, slow on protective equipment, and now slow to take up these offers from British firms. That will be the time to move on to the second phase, in which we continue to suppress the disease and keep the reproduction rate, the R rate, down, but begin gradually to refine the economic and social restrictions, and one by one, to fire up the engines of this vast UK economy. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of The Bubble. A COVID-19 um, recap, I suppose. We're getting some old guests back that were so interesting the first time. We thought we'd get some of their insight and expert opinions on, um, I suppose, the elephant in the room at the moment. I'm not. Uh, is it an elephant the right word for it? It's it, it's pretty much the room. It is. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So we've invited back three of our favourite guests um, who might have an insight into the world that we're currently living in, which is entirely different to the world that we interviewed them in. Um, so we've got Andrew Mizzle of Alcohol Concern UK. We've got John West uh, of MA. Uh, journalism fame and tim anderson who is MasterChef winner and founder of nanban which is an amazing japanese restaurant down in brixton um and he's the former manager of the houston tap which is an awesome bar um and between them we thought we we, we'd be able to offer a, a bigger insight than perhaps other uh podcasts and um hell mainstream media outlets as to what's happening in the alcohol industry and what's happening to people's lives within it in particular it's quite a a human story we're telling with these three people. Yeah, it's about what's going on currently, I suppose, the cause and then the effect of no one really knows what's going to happen. Um, it is a guessing game. It's changing day by day. 
Um, and it's really interesting to talk to all three of these gents to sort of see where it might lead um, to give us a bit more insight and where we're going to be in six months or a year. Yeah, and then to not be sort of caught out. Um, but we are going to start actually with something that is happening right now. And I think something that everyone can probably appreciate, which is the fact that we're all drinking more regularly. Yeah. Is that um, fair? <laughs> that's definitely fair. Both you and I and a lot of the, the nation are trapped at home and we're not going out. And it, it makes it all more tempting to reach for a beer at five o'clock to break up the day. Um, and I don't think really anyone is... Still in that awkward gap between work and dinner. Exactly. Which used to be commuting. <laughs> but yeah, it becomes more regular. It, it is a bit easier. But I suppose the flip side of that is it's usually only one or maybe two or on a really bold day three instead of going to the pub and drinking eight pints. So, it, it, I mean, it's a change in a lot of people's drinking habits um, and it's trying to understand if that's good or whether it's bad or whether it doesn't really matter. Yeah, but there's no better person to speak to than Andrew about these sort of things um, and the, the effect of these uh, of drinking too much. Yeah, so Andrew's um, he's, he's in the Welsh office of, of Alcohol Concern UK, which is a charity that uh, funds research um, and, and helps uh, support uh, the government in terms of the legislation they're putting in place. Uh, I interviewed Andrew uh, just over a year, uh, just over two years ago, just under two years ago, a bit of time ago. Um, and we had a really interesting chat about the way that legislation uh, had played out in the real world uh, and about the, um, I guess, the, the motives behind these charities. Uh, and I was really impressed by the way that he approaches it. He's very down to earth. He's a drinker himself. He understands the mindset that we're in. So it was an interesting interview to have with him again at a time when I assumed alcohol charities would be extremely concerned because, you know, people have almost gone underground in their drinking. We don't know what their habits are right now. Um, and I wouldn't say he reassured me, but I, I don't think that there's, there, there, well, there has been a kind of moral panic around it right at the start. And I don't think there needs to be. And Andrew's certainly of the opinion that that's unhelpful. Um, but yeah, what follows now is some some interesting statistics and studies that have been done, uh, some tips on looking after your mental health um, and understanding why you're drinking and how much you're drinking um, and what that will mean. So this is our Andrew Mizzle of Alcohol Concern UK. Let's talk about beer, Johnny. Let's talk about AVB. Let's talk about Imperial Stouts and Ember Buyouts of Wicked Weed. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Andrew, thanks for joining us. No problem. Um, I guess my, my first question would be, I think when when the lockdown happened and we saw this huge surge in, in sales of supermarkets, particularly of alcohol, I think there was, you know, what, what you would cynically call perhaps a little bit of moral panic about the amount of alcohol suddenly changing hands. Is that of a concern? Um, the amount of alcohol being sold? Do you know, it's a strange one. I think we don't really know what to make of it. I mean, there, first of all, there was this rather strange panic of pasta and toilet paper buying. And there still, still seems to be a bit of a flour panic going on. So I'm assuming that people are baking loads of bread and cakes. But this this alcohol panic that seemed to occur about a fortnight after the toilet paper panic cleared the shelves uh, in, in my local supermarket and it's really quite hard to know what it means. Uh, it may be that people just thought, oh, well, 
I can't go to the pub. I need to sort of get the necessaries at home. It may be that um, some people went on a, a, a massive bender. And I suppose the most concerning outcome, and we don't know whether this is true, is that people started drinking heavily, have continued to, and will continue to. I, I will say, just to throw it into the mix, one of the things that has occurred to me, because partly because I suspect a lot of the food that was bought in a panic will be wasted, is that I, I noticed that people were buying more or less everything, certainly in terms of beer. And I wouldn't be too surprised if some of that just doesn't get drunk because people get home and think, oh, do you know what? I, I, don't, I don't like this stuff. I've never liked this stuff. Um, and, it, and it's just going to sit in the back of the cupboard. And from, from a health point of view, that, you know, that may be a good thing, although it's obviously not great from the point of view of waste. Well, we look back on coronavirus through stages of panic buying. So sort of week one was, was pasta. Week two was toilet yeah. roll. There was an alcohol week. Uh, yeah. And then eventually, <laughs> who knows what the, the, the future weeks will have in store for us. Um, yeah, I was, I was trying to get yeast last week. That's, it's like gold dust. I think that's why everyone's turned to sourdough, isn't it? It could um, well be. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, so you're not directly co- correlating sort of sales with with consumption, but I guess the fact that home consumption of alcohol is less regulated, you don't have bar staff keeping an eye on it, you don't have obviously higher costs that probably reduce consumption. So is is research that you guys have done does that point to drinking at home potentially being more dangerous for those who are vulnerable to alcohol addiction? I I think there's always been a little bit of a concern about home drinking. I mean. You've got to be very careful with this because the the home is the one sphere, I think, particularly in the UK. The home is one of those places where we we don't like to be regulated. And so we expect to be able to drink or smoke or do whatever it is that we like to do without anyone telling us what to do. On the other hand, um, without wishing to romanticise the pub, um, I think there are some quite obvious advantages to a a well-run pub in terms of a drinking environment in that if you've got a, a responsible licensee, and most are, uh, they'll want to keep a lid on the drinking because uh, uh, an entirely drunk clientele is, is just not, not a good atmosphere. Um, and you've got that sort of, um, as a series of obstacles to, to drinking too much into the pub, and that you've, you've, got to be, you've got to be motivated to go up to the bar and, and get your next round. And then you've got to try and persuade a sober person that you should be sold more alcohol, Whereas, obviously, when, when you've got it at home, and I know this from experience, when you've got it in the cupboard, um, you, you kind of work your way through it. And people have said this in quite serious academic research where people have actually gone out and interviewed home drinkers. One of the things people say is it's a lot less bother to drink at home. But in some ways, that bother of having to go and get your next round is, is perhaps quite a healthy thing because it, it, it brings some sort of natural pauses into your drinking. This summer, I'm going to be hosting talks at the Manchester, Bristol and London Craft Beer Festivals, giving festival goers the chance to attend tutored tastings, rare beer pours, meet the brewers and even guided tours of the bars. 
These three festivals are the highlights of my events calendar, featuring some of the world's best breweries with delicious restaurant pop-ups, great music, and a really welcoming party atmosphere. It's the third year I've been hosting the We Are Beer Tastings table, but for the first time, I'm delighted to offer all of our listeners, viewers, and Patreons £5 off a ticket when you use the code CBC5. Just hit the link in the description to buy. See you there. Or indeed waiting for whoever's round it is to uh, offer up rather than at home where you finish a drink, you go straight to the fridge. Yeah, yeah. There's a, yeah. And, and as well, there's, there's a social aspect of, of, of drinking in the pub. And it, obviously it doesn't have to be in the pub. You might be meeting people in a, a village hall or a place of worship or a library or wherever you like to go. But I think all of us at the moment uh, uh, are realising that we, we really like people we as human beings like to get out and meet other people. It's very good for us sort of mentally and spiritually. Uh, and obviously one of, one of the advantages of, uh, of a pub is that you go out, you, you meet quite a mixed group of people um, and you, you socialize and you, you share things and discuss things. And that, that's, that's generally a good idea. From what I can sort of establish from talking to a lot of sort of friends and family that seems more of, people are drinking maybe more regularly. So instead of only drinking three or four or whatever times a week, they're maybe drinking five times a week, but it's a lot more restrained. Um, it seems to be like it breaks up the day or something. So they'll maybe have a beer at five o'clock and then that's that. Whereas before they would have gone to the pub and maybe had five pints. Um, is there any research or anything to suggest that that is a common theme or is that just amongst my my peers? That wouldn't surprise me, actually. I mean, it's it's interesting that uh, people are saying they're drinking more frequently uh, and they're managing to restrain themselves. Uh, I mean, to some extent, there's been a lot of discussion about this, you know, the old business of 14 units a week and whether you should, uh, whether it makes a difference if you drink it all at once or you drink it over, over seven days. Um, and in terms of the amount of alcohol that goes through your body, it it doesn't make much difference, but obviously, if you do drink it all at once, uh, you're you're more prone to uh, falling over, becoming sort of drunk and enraged, and all the kind of things that might happen when someone someone's very drunk. So, spreading it out like that uh, is is probably a good thing. I, I guess the the only thing, if you are drinking maybe five days a week or even seven days a week. Uh, is that there's room there for alcohol to become a bit more habitual, a bit less of a treat and a special occasion. And that, that can become problematic for some people. I was wondering, um, I think it's fair to say that a, a lot of people are under significant stress, um, potentially grieving. Um, pe- people are getting very bored, which can obviously have impact on, on mental health. What are the dangers of, of having mental mental health issues such as depression, anxiety and stuff like that and, and drinking, do they correlate at all in, in making each other worse? I mean, there's a there's a huge and sort of complicated overlap. I mean, alcohol has quite rightly been described as Britain's favourite coping mechanism. And in the short term, it you know, it does help you cope in that it makes you feel quite euphoric and makes you forget about things. But um, as anyone who's ever had alcohol will know, the effects don't last very long and you normally feel uh, worse afterwards. I think that there's a genuine um, risk here. I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous often quote uh, an acronym they use, which is HALT, 
so hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, uh, which are four very obvious triggers for whatever your uh, your particular sort of root of, of misuse or addiction is. Uh, and I'd say certainly the last three of those angry, lonely, and tired. There's probably quite a lot of us. There's quite a lot of us feeling those um, at the moment. Um, and to some extent, you know, when people have asked me in uh, the other interviews I've done over the last few weeks about well, what should we do about people who drink too much during the lockdown or what should I do if I'm drinking too much? Uh, and my advice is often not really anything to do with alcohol. It's to do with um, uh, taking care of our mental health. It's to do with getting out and exercising as much as we can within within the rules uh seeing people as much as we can uh i mean even things like the uh the the thursday night applause for uh essential workers i mean it's, it has its own benefit in terms of boosting morale in the nhs but perhaps one of the greatest benefits is you can actually go and see the neighbors um as long as you don't get too close to them and that's certainly what i've been doing on thursday nights and generally within our households within our families obviously we need to cut each other a bit of slack show a bit of patience, look after each other. And a lot of those things are perhaps more important than counting how many units of alcohol we're having. That's a, yeah, it's an interesting perspective I hadn't really considered when, when I've taken part in the, in the applause on a Thursday, even just leaning out the window and seeing lots of other people is actually a little bit reassuring because I go, even though I live on, on a main street, um, aware of any humans around most of the time. And it's, I think loneliness, people think of people, um, you know, not being able to talk to anybody um, or, or feeling particularly depressed about about many things and, and not having the interactions. But actually, just not being around humans seems to be pretty bad for us. Um, and the closure of the public is awful for that. I would say so. I mean, we are, I understand that all of the higher primates are live in social groups. It's what chimpanzees and orangutans do as well. Humans are no exception to that. We do we do need each other around. Have you made any changes to your, your policy or your approach or your communications off, off the back of this crisis and the lockdown? I mean, we, we've had to provide some very particular information. And I mean, at the very sharp end, obviously, we've had to provide briefings for uh, people who are perhaps working with homeless people or street drinkers, which presents its own challenge in terms of looking after someone who's probably quite mobile, uh, perhaps chaotic in their life. And how do you deal with things like that? How do you make sure that they get fed, they don't go into alcoholic withdrawal, but on the other hand, they don't drink too much? All, all these kind of things. Um, and I think, we I mean, I know we've also been posting things along the line that, that, that I've just been talking about, general advice about uh, looking after your mental health and, and being aware, perhaps, of how much you're drinking. I mean, not everyone wants to count up the exact numbers of units, but it's, it's, it's always a good idea to, to, to have a little pause, perhaps, before you have a drink. And, um, and think about how much you actually want to drink, um, at what point you might want to stop, and, and perhaps have a little think about your motivations, um, make sure you're drinking for the right reasons, you're drinking for, for pleasure and, and uh, for social reasons rather than simply because you're bored. I think that's probably one of the, the big risks at the moment is is boredom drinking. And for a lot of people, you know, the, 
they've just in, always worked and always had this lifestyle of the go to go to their nine to five and you know, go home and eat dinner and repeat. But you know when you don't need to get up and you're sat at home all day, it kind of breaks up the day from night maybe. Or I mean, people will justify it in different ways, but at the end of the day, it's it will come down to boredom drinking, and I think that's probably the the biggest concern for um, someone like yourself. Definitely, I think it's um yeah it's 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 a common issue and uh, um someone was saying to me recently exactly exactly what you were just saying Rob how do I mark the difference between day and night um because I'm not coming home from my office or my shop or my factory or wherever it is that I work um and and the only thing that seems obvious to mark the difference between day and night is to is to open some kind of alcoholic drink and that's it's not not necessarily a problem but. It, there's a potential problem in there because i mean for me my tea and coffee consumption has definitely gone up <laughs> yes yes yeah it's, it's some something to break up the day when there are no natural breaks so yeah final question um is is this a moment of of greater alcohol concern or is is are you not particularly more concerned than you are generally with the, the situation of alcohol consumption I think we've got to keep an eye on it. I'm I'm very wary of anything that looks like moral outrage and anything that looks like I might be on my soapbox or, or in my pulpit. I'm, I suppose I know from experience that people drink for all sorts of complex reasons and simply having the man from Alcohol Change UK coming along and saying, you know what, the chief medical officer says you shouldn't drink more than 14 units. That That's not really going to cut it. So I'm, I think we're keeping a watching brief. Uh, I mean, we've done some opinion polling uh, a couple of weeks ago, which indicated that people who are already drinking at a low level are cutting down. Uh, and some people who are drinking heavily, their drinking's going up. So that, that is worrying. Uh, it's very much the pattern that we would expect to see. It's unfortunate in the world of health and public health that people who are coping tend to cope well in a crisis. People who are not coping anyway, uh, or who are not doing very well anyway, things get worse for them. There's a there's a certain unfairness about the whole thing, but that, that is how it tends to go. So I think we're keeping a watching brief. We're trying to um, point people in the right direction. A lot of the services, people like AA, Smart Recovery, local alcohol services, local mental health groups, who were providing support face to face, are doing it on the phone and online. Uh, and we obviously try and point people in the direction of a local group um, where, where they can get some support online. I know one or two places are still open for, for face-to-face support with precautions. So we, I think we're keeping a watching brief, uh, trying to deal with problems as they arise and try and make sure that um, people have the information they need if perhaps a problem develops. So, yeah, where as the last question, where should people be heading uh, if they're worried that they're drinking too much or concerned that somebody else in their household is? I mean, if you if you have a look on the Alcohol Change UK website, we've put together, uh, there's a little uh, suite of coronavirus-related pages, uh, and there's general help pages there which explain um, how people can, can get help. Uh, you've, there's a range of organisations. I mean, the, the one that most people know very well is Alcoholics Anonymous and the related Al-Anon family groups. Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't suit everyone. It's a very good organisation, doesn't suit everyone. There's also um, Smart Recovery, which has a, perhaps a less uh, 
spiritual approach, you know, perhaps more practical, which suits some some other people. Uh, and also, actually, if you look on our website, if you just have a look online, you know, on a, an ordinary uh, Google search for alcohol services near you, there are a whole range of both statutory and uh, charitable alcohol services. I mean, uh, there's plenty in, in my area and surrounding towns. You'll find the same picture across the country. And my uh, experience certainly was that as soon as there was a hint that we were going to have to shut up shop and go home uh, and stop seeing people, these local alcohol charities were rushing to get themselves online to get video conferencing, telephone calls and things set up. So there will be someone in your local area who can speak to you. Um, And there will be a group that you can join virtually, even if unfortunately at the moment you can't go out and sit down with someone face to face. So I hope that was interesting. I think what I took away from it, and it was a really interesting point from Andrew, was that you know counting the units you're having isn't necessarily the most helpful thing to to do right now. What is better to, is to focus on your mental health and check that that's a not getting too low. You're not feeling too too ill in your mind, and b um, recognizing whether you're drinking because of that or for positive reasons. Don't let it become a boredom thing. Let it become a reward and something you enjoy, obviously, but not something you're doing just because there's nothing else to do um, and that is important and that's probably a trap I've fallen into a little bit um, as we I mentioned to John or Andrea in that interview that I'm drinking more coffee I'm drinking more tea I'm doing a lot more things to fill the day um, but obviously they don't have maybe the same detriment on my health as alcohol does so I assume you're also going to the loo a lot more often oh, yeah, drinking lot, more tea yeah, just more liquids yeah, so our next interview is with John West. Um, John West is a, a, a financial journalist um, specialising in mergers and acquisitions, um, so the, the merger market, uh, which we originally got him on the podcast to talk about what happens during the sale of a brewery to private equity or to another brewery, um, to talk through the finances, the negotiations, and how that market works in terms of the market makers who connect these people. Um, but today we want to chat to him more about the likelihood of there being consolidation, acquisitions, insolvencies in the beer market. Got a yeast infection. Shin, 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 Yeast infection. Shin, 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 So let's crack on because I think this will be the most complicated 15, 20 minutes of the podcast. Um, I'd love to know if you could just give us a little overview into, you know, what what what's happened financially in the last couple of weeks in terms of mergers and acquisitions and activity. Is there any at all? I mean, the market is largely, and this is across all sectors, not just to do with beer, the market is essentially frozen. There are a number of deals that were in the works before the crisis happened. Um, 
they were already doing due diligence, there were exclusive talks with parties, and those have perhaps reached a conclusion. Anything consumer-related um, is, is particularly complicated, and the only kind of deals that we're really seeing um, any hope of uh, in, in the coming weeks, at the very least, are those coming out of um, insolvency proceedings, so where the assets have, have essentially failed, whether that's through a, a pre-pack, a sort of arranged insolvency, or whether they've been forced into insolvency, um, we are expecting to see some purchase of assets out of that process, but um, the kind of growth deals that would, would be a significant segment of, of M&A activity, we're not expecting to see. And there's a very simple reason for that. I mean, only today, and obviously this is looking just at the UK, not, not wider Europe or global space, but you know, GFK's uh, measure of, of consumer confidence in the UK in April was minus 34, which is pretty much bang where we were in the, in the midst of the Lehman Brothers collapse and financial crisis of 2008. So, you know, clearly against that backdrop, um, it's very difficult to project what kind of financials consumer facing companies will have, uh, what their 2020 outlook is. is. We, we won't have any view on that for, I think, for some weeks. Probably we'll need to wait till the first half results um, for, for people to have a sense of how this is feeding into um, financials. And it's off the back of the multiples of those financials that people will decide how much a company is worth. And so is it fair to say that once once uh, the the economy start moving again, we get the results, are we going to see the opposite of that? Are we going to see a, a, a flurry of activity as people pounce on opportunities that have arisen due to, you know, insolvencies or drop in values or? One of the things that I think is particularly interesting about going into this crisis is that, okay, so since 2008, we've had historically low interest rates. I was watching, um, because I'm a, a foolish geek, um, I was watching a Prime Minister's questions uh, to compare um, financial crises from, from ages past. I was watching a fan, um, uh, I was watching a Prime Minister's questions from, from 1992, in which uh, John Major, then UK Prime Minister, was, uh, was uh, lauding the fact that they'd got interest rates to a, a real low of 8%. Um, now, when you compare that to the interest rates that we've had in the last 10 years, bubbling around zero, the zero lower bound, um, that means that cash has been relatively easy to get hold of. Now, that means that investors, private equity and corporates, and venture capital firms have been able to hoard huge amounts of what we call dry powder, the money that they can put to work to invest. So where, where we are now um, going into this crisis private equity and venture capital funds globally are sitting on roughly $3 trillion worth of dry powder, commitments from investors to invest in their funds so that they can make acquisitions. So I think that there is indeed the possibility that when we begin to get some clarity, that those companies uh, that have suffered uh, and, and whose balance sheets are not in the position that they were could become interesting to opportunistic funds that were interested in the space in the first place. So do you think it will improve the market for these big buyers um, when we get out the other side of this? Yeah, I think I think as big buyers is the right is the right way to look at it. We've been following for some time the private equity interest in um, uh, in, in the in the craft brewing space in particular, um, and also, of course, the macro interest, the macro brewer interest, the likes of AB InBev. Um, and what we've seen is uh, that there is a private equity appetite 
for uh, those kind of uh, those kind of plays. And we believe that there are going to be you would have historically called them vulture funds. Um, that's a little bit uh, that's a little bit uh, pejorative. Let's call them turnaround funds. <laughs> Let's call them turnaround funds. That's what they prefer to be called these days. Um, but yeah, I think there will be uh, opportunistic purchases. But I think you're right to say that it will be larger funds uh, and and larger corporates that that are making these kind of acquisitions. Um, I, I I still think that we're at the point in the cycle where one or two of the very, very large global brewers might want in key territories to add one or two extra craft breweries to their distribution network in order to have that that cachet and be able to offer a wraparound deal to uh, the on and off trade alike. Um, but I don't think that the outlook is so good for mergers between smaller brewers because it's very difficult without having a, a significant distribution network or a, a, a significant background in logistics to make those kind of mergers at the smaller level yield the kind of synergies that would make them worthwhile to undertake. And who will they be looking out for? Uh, what type of businesses, I suppose? Um, I think, as when we last spoke, I think that the, the main kind of uh, targets are going to be the ones that have that sweet spot of cachet um, and and respectability and a degree of, dare I say it, cool um, within the craft beer space, the right branding, um, the right location, a, a kind of funky urban location, Manchester, London, I guess, uh, Edinburgh, Leeds, Glasgow, those kind of, you know, urban centres which are seen as, 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 as having that cool cachet. Um, I think that, that, that that's where the focus is going to, is going to be. Um, and if the branding is right and they've got to a certain scale where they're getting distribution, I think particularly into supermarkets, even if it's at a small level or regional or national uh, restaurant chains, I think those are the ones that are going to be of the greatest interest to these buyers. But I do want to sound... A significant note of caution. Um, I think we'll begin to see clarity when we get to the to the end of the first half of the year, um, in terms of what the impact of of coronavirus is on on various corporate balance sheets and and P and Ls, uh, profit and loss accounts. But uh, it's still very early days. I mean, we are in a position where we simply don't know what the trading environment is going to be, particularly for the on-trade um, in the coming weeks, the coming months. Obviously, everyone's seen in the UK the reports that pubs might not be fully operational um, until Christmas. We don't know the kind of measures that will be in place, uh, whether that's having to run table service or uh, only allowing a certain number of customers into bars. I think that obviously uh, leaves a great many pubs and bars um, flirting with their business not really being sustainable. And so I think it makes a huge difference what government package is there for the hospitality industry. Of course, you know, we've seen over the years that more beer is being bought on the uh, off trade than on trade, but it's still roughly 50, 50 and the on trade um, recovery is a huge part of whether there's going to be appetite for M and a in the production side of the breweries. Yeah. So I've got two questions sort of based off of that. Uh, Rob, while we were having a chat uh, earlier, raised the interesting prospect of the fact that Asia um, got hit by this first and China in particular 
you know seems to be going back to normal does that mean perhaps that chinese investors hong kong investors that we know have an appetite for british brewing and real estate like we saw with the acquisition um of green king is that is it more likely that they're going to be looking for those kind of deals or is it on the flip side because pubs are in such an uncertain place actually that acquisition looks kind of foolish right now um i think that when it comes to asia you're 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 talking about three different major regional powers right so you're talking about china japan south korea all of them have uh, are at very different stages and very different political systems clearly um in terms of how they will address these things i think in china there is going to be um you know there is always at the best of times skepticism about official statistics produced by the chinese government um and i think that's true of output statistics as well we are clearly seeing a recovery in supply chains we know that um goods are coming from china where, that, that that weren't getting through at the at the at the worst of the lockdown so we do know that there is recovery but i think there's going to be scant appetite um among the you know the high high ups in the chinese communist party to offshore a lot of currency at the moment um and i suspect that uh, you won't see significant overseas mergers and acquisitions um you might, I suppose, at the fringes be able to buy a craft brewery for what would be loose change for some corporates, but I, I just don't think it's going to be the focus. Um, obviously, South Korea has managed the crisis, as everybody is, is, is aware very well, with its very high level of um, testing and contact tracing. And I think there's perhaps a little more wriggle room for corporates in South Korea to, to, to take those opportunities um, without that being seen as politically sensitive. Um, Japan seems to be flirting with going back into a, a disaster style scenario, um, having initially dealt with it very well. It, it, there are concerns, let's say, disaster is perhaps too strong, but there are concerns about the resurgence of cases in Japan and the ICU capacity in Japan. And I, I'm not sure that corporates will be focused on M&A, certainly um, while that is unfolding. So we we need to take a long view at how this is going to affect acquisitions and consolidation in in certainly in the British market. I think so. I mean, you know, we we were talking to sources when I think back to the end of 2019, the 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 you know when we when we were in in, in with my hat on as a as a financial editor, when we were looking at consolidation in the um uh, in the craft beer space in the UK, we spoke to um. Uh, a, a, a regional um, private equity fund, BGF, based in the UK. They made an investment in purity brewing, um, and they they were talking very much about sort of building a portfolio of uh, businesses around craft beer, mulling a round of craft beer acquisitions in the UK, um, prioritising businesses in the north of England, uh, but also looking at London. And uh, we spoke to sector bankers saying that, you know, obviously five points was was a brewery that uh, that fit the bill for, as an investment um, opportunity. Indeed, the, the founder and CEO, um, Ed Mason, of five points told told us um, that his brewery had had a number of discussions with potential investors and strategic partners and, and continues to review options. All of that was before the crisis. Since the crisis, I, I really do believe that even for those promising companies, um, people are going to want to see how the impact, how the how the crisis has impacted them. 
I think at the smaller level, um, I think we are probably at the point where, I mean, look, even before coronavirus, we were having discussions about, are we overbreweried? Are, are, are we going to see a thinning out the, the competition, particularly in, in the cask only uh, segment is, was seen as cutthroat, fierce, casks going for ludicrously low prices in some cases and you know we were throwing a question mark over the viability of some of these breweries i think that this crisis brings just accelerates that slightly and i i don't doubt that we will see significantly fewer breweries in the uk emerge from this crisis and be around for consolidation purposes in the next 18 months to two or three years uh, than we went into it i just don't think that the market is there to sustain the number of breweries in the best of times and in the worst of times, I think they will be, um, and, and I mean this in the, I don't mean this in a bad way because I know there's some very fine brewers out there um, doing good, great work, but they're going to be found out or at least be caught out. What does it mean for breweries that have already had significant investments? So for Purity, Northern Monk, over in the States, people like Oscar Blues, if they've, you know, these funds that own significant portions of them are going to be experiencing losses right now what what will that mean for these breweries well i mean they they're in a very good position um it, because they will have um you know they will be able to tap the financial resources of their investors um and also they will be able to not not only tap the resources but the acumen so for example um you know lots of the private equity investors not just in the brewing space but lots of private equity investors um first thing they do um once they, they well assuming they've levered up the company to pay themselves a nice big fat dividend but um they will also um, you know arrange credit facilities ongoing effectively bank overdrafts we call them revolving credit facilities bank overdrafts for the companies as soon as this crisis began to bite all of the private equity firms were saying right you need to tap all of your existing uh, revolving credit facility so that you've got cash on hand it's not it it's it, it doesn't seem likely to me that many small breweries would have revolving credit facilities they wouldn't be they wouldn't have the backing of a big investor to have those revolving credit facilities and they wouldn't even necessarily have the acumen to draw them down uh, immediately to have the cash on hand um, so you get not only the backing of the investor, but also the the financial acumen. Um, I think it is also perhaps likelier with big investors that you are going to be able to more easily access some of the liquidity schemes that the Bank of England and the uh, Treasury have put in place. Because one of the things that we have seen with smaller businesses is the rollout of um, some of the business loans, some £300 billion worth of loans uh, that were announced by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Um, we're finding that some of the smaller businesses are having real trouble accessing those loans because the government is only guaranteeing 80% of them. And so the banks, given that this is obviously an economically turbulent time, even though they're only exposed to 20% of the risk, they're putting it through their full due diligence process. And so accessing that liquidity is slow. Whereas if you are a, a big company uh, with a good credit rating, perhaps issuing lots of uh, corporate debt on a regular basis, you have the kind of profile to access those schemes much more quickly. Do you think um, big breweries like Heineken could use this as an advantage to um, get more tap space? So a lot of pubs are in debt to um, breweries and distributors um, and they could you know, take on that debt for, for in exchange for that tap space? 
I, I undoubtedly. I mean, undoubtedly, that's 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 going to that's going to be the case. I mean, again, that's one of those things. I think I think you've hit on a really good point there because this is another thing. In the same way that we were overbreweried and um, the business models were in question for some breweries, and I think that the crisis accelerates that. I think that we were already seeing with the major breweries um, uh, buying a couple of craft beer brands each in order to offer a full spectrum offering to to pubs and bars and taking up more tap space and speaking to independent brewers myself i mean it, and as you all know they have found it much more challenging to sell into pub co's and, and get tap space uh, obviously particularly on on the keg lines uh, than maybe even four or five years ago uh, i think that this certainly accelerates it because they have the the money in their pockets to make those kind of relationships uh, stick and of course publicans and pub co's will be looking for any and all uh, opportunities to uh, do things as cheaply as possible because they will have debts resulting from this crisis that uh, they haven't forecast Yikes. <laughs> so again, really interesting from John. He's always got a lot of insight um, and it's really fascinating hearing sort of his two cents on things. Um, and it looks like we are in store for a big change when things come back um, with big breweries trying to pick out some small breweries, um, a lot of uncertainty just with everything that's going on. Um, is it worrying? I think the most worrying thing wasn't so much that there will be acquisitions, which there probably will be, maybe not as many as we were worried there might be. What was scary is him so completely agreeing with you when he said that, well, well I asked whether people with private equity behind them had an advantage, and you asked um, whether you know people like Heineken are going to be able to sort of uh, exploit the fact that there's going to be lots of pubs that don't have any liquid assets and, and uh, any liquid cash and want to um, get those payment terms in like they'll sell their taps in a heartbeat that's what's really scary yeah I mean I sort of saw this coming quite early on as a concern of mine um, working for an independent beer supplier that we are very vulnerable to that and they have a lot of buying power and a lot of money and we don't know what's going to come out of all this. We, and a lot of people will be in financial difficulties and they'll be able to give them a lot of, well, a lot more support than an independent brewery. Yeah, and by support, you mean literally money to serve Heineken. Yeah. Literally 20 grand, 50 grand to say these taps are Heineken taps now. Yeah, yeah. And then they can yeah. you know, get get rid of a bit of their debt or or whatever they need that money for. So... But or even just get that security, you know? Even if they're not in debt, just knowing 50 grand straight in the bank and, and a pouring lager that they don't need to worry about. Yeah. So I think there will be breweries that will close. Some will close because the things probably weren't going well for them before overly, and it will be a good excuse to, you know, close the doors after a good run. Um, I do think that will happen. Um, but, yeah, my bigger concern will be... Um, will be the ladder of big breweries coming in um, and as John said quite a lot during that there are there are a lot of breweries there's probably too many so we probably won't suffer a few losses um, unless our favourites go obviously but we can manage that yeah I think it's interesting it goes back to what Andrew said about how 
with this kind of crisis, the people who are struggling already, it tends to get worse for them. The people that were doing okay tend to do okay. So any brewery that already had lots of financial issues or, you know, maybe the it was a one-man band and, and that person sort of reached the end of their tether, they're the people most likely to go. So I'd, I'd be surprised if there were some high-profile casualties. Maybe some, you know, like there's always talks about Marston's having a lot of financial difficulties, a lot of debts to service. So that, that could be a big player that goes. But mostly it's going to be those small... Uh, one-man bands, brew pubs, stuff like that that we should be worried about and we should be you know, looking to support if they're making great beer and they're good people and we, we want them to stick around. Yeah, definitely. Um, talking with good people and good small businesses, um, our next guest is the wonderful Tim Anderson. Yeah, and he's really made me want to eat some good ramen. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he came here for, just to remind us all that uh, his ramen is available on Deliveroo. Um, so we wanted to chat to him uh, he's a big beer geek but we wanted to chat to him about his restaurant what it was like we, we know the stories of pubs like I've been writing stories about them they're all over the media at the moment uh, the plight of pubs and restaurants have almost had like second billing to it I think because you know pubs pubs have always struggled uh, but restaurants have their issues too like Tim says um, you know restaurants don't have long life cycles they, they come and they go pretty pretty regularly and this is not going to help them um but again he 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 said he seems to say that those who adapt quickly might be able to survive i guess yeah we see that with everyone at the moment you just need to adapt to try and counteract what's going on and you know he's doing different things in the restaurant to do that and he sees when we come out of this other side that he'll have to do things differently and that is just evolution of any industry really yeah and this has been accelerated by by the crisis so let's uh let's hear from tim oh, i love that stuff and drinking it for years drinking it for years drinking it for years drinking it for years you know i, I moved there recently decided to add more hops to it to it hops to it you know i, I moved there recently decided to add more hops to it to it so Tim, first question would be, what was that week like in the lead up to the shutdown? So we had basically the government saying, don't go to restaurants and pubs, yeah. and then five days later, shutting it down. Well, let's just say uh, that at the end of that week, I drank a lot of gin <laughs> in one go, I should say. Um, so it was it was really probably one of the hardest weeks um, I've experienced in my career running a restaurant um, because it, it was very emotional and, and, and the news kept changing. Uh, it was really hard to keep up with what was going on and really hard to make any kind of plans or announcements. Um, cause we, cause the government kept saying, you know, delivering new, um, new news and, uh, as soon as we would change one thing, then we'd have to change it again. So, like, on Monday when they announced that um, people should stop going to social venues, I think they called them, uh, including restaurants, then and didn't obviously tell anybody to actually shut and didn't announce any kind of compensation or anything like that, then that day I was just furious. That day I was just ang like angry that they would do that, that they would throw us under the bus like that. Um, 
of course, then I think two days later, they announced that there would be some kind of relief on the Wednesday, or, or maybe it was not till the end of the week. Um, but they obviously didn't release any details. So it was still really like uh, just confusing and, and impossible to know what to do. I remember on the Wednesday before they announced that there would be compensation or, or reimbursement, um, I had to tell the staff, we didn't lay anybody off. We wound up furloughing almost everybody, but I had to tell them that basically there's no more hours um, and we're going to pay them what we can for the time being. Um, this is before we knew that we could claim back 80%. So that was a really, that was the hardest day having to tell staff that basically like you, you could all be out of jobs soon and we don't know what's going on. Um, that's not something you ever want to have to say to people. Um, but we had to be honest. We had to be upfront because we just didn't know. And then of course on Friday when they decided to, when they actually shut the restaurants, uh, or, or everywhere, um, that was, uh, mostly a relief. That was mostly like, oh, okay, well now at least we know what's going on. We know what we need to be doing because that's that. Um, and I really, on that evening, the Friday would have been our last service. That was the, I think the 20th of March. And I was at home cause I, I had already been self-isolating cause I had some suspicious symptoms and so did my family that week. Um, and I decided not to go in, but I really wished I could have, or I, I, I thought I should have been because it, it felt like, you know, uh, I, I should have been like a captain going down with his ship in a way. Not that it's that dire, but it kind of is. I mean, um, did you not think it might be the last night that Nanban served? No, I, I always knew that this would. Um, well, for one thing, we we always had planned to keep delivery going, um, and we we still are. And um, I, I I I had been on the optimistic slash stupid naive um in that position before the lockdown actually started i thought that this kind of this would kind of come and go and not make a not be a big deal and blow over quickly i don't think that now <laughs> um obviously but i do think it will blow over and it will return to some kind of normalcy um but not for a very long time but yeah i i always you know nanban is not a very robust business but we are robust robust enough um to weather this kind of storm, I think, anyway. We, we, only time will tell. Hopefully this podcast will age nicely, rather than this being uh, yeah. wildly accurate and you going, we can look back at this podcast as the moment you said, I'll be fine. Well, actually, I, you know what, I'll take that back. I didn't always think that we would come out, um, uh, we, we, we would reopen. There was a moment when I thought, you know, this could severely damage the business if not uh ruin it if not destroy it um and of course that is happening it will happen to some businesses um it could be us like and when i realized that it was really um it was upsetting like i realized that i've been lucky to have had the opportunity to run a restaurant and to serve people and to um make the kind of food that i love um that that was a brief moment when i i had that thought but it was a scary one uh, how's the delivery worked out for you? Because a lot of, well, the narrative is that delivery, direct delivery is saving a lot of breweries at the moment. I don't, 
I don't think mm. that's true. They're not getting anywhere near the volumes they were. But are you managing to um, compensate for a significant portion of what would have been sales? We are not a significant amount. No, our our delivery business is okay, and it's certainly gotten um, stronger than it was when we were open as a dine-in restaurant. Um, and it's enough to basically pay the staff and some of our overheads that need paying. Um, pay, sorry, I should say, pay the staff who are in there. There's only three people who are um, on the roads now. Uh, but it's still not. We're not paying them what um, we're not paying them what they would have been paid because part a lot of the uh, salaries that the staff got or the wages um, came from service charge, uh, which obviously we don't get anymore. Um, so they, we've bumped up their salaries, but you know it can only go so much before it becomes we can't afford them at all. Um, also, I don't I don't know if a lot of people know this, but we, so we use Deliveroo. Um, as our delivery operator, um, and obviously the other big one is Uber Eats. They both take between thirty and thirty-five percent commission, um, and and we are liable for VAT. So right off the bat, any money we make, fifty percent of it is gone. So even though we're doing pretty well with Deliveroo, it just it it um, ultimately doesn't it doesn't go very far that money. Yeah, the margins are razor thin. So post lockdown, um, when when they we're allowed back to eat in restaurants again, what do you think that will look like? Um, just before you came on, Johnny and I were discussing, and I'm sort of of the opinion that bars and restaurants will probably be the last place we're allowed to go back to, unfortunately. So, uh, what, what's your your sort of two cents on it, and what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think the government has said uh, that they, yeah, they'll be among the last places to reopen. I think that the very last thing they said are going to be um, really big venues like sports arenas and um, things like movie theaters and and theaters. Uh, But anyway, I think, yeah, it'll be a while before they reopen. And then there might be, there will probably be phased um, lockdowns throughout the rest of the year, maybe even, you know, next year. Um, and there will be probably social distancing measures put in place um, for the restaurants when they are open. So you'll have to operate at you know fifty percent capacity or, or something like that, or, or even less. Um, there was a really good article in Eater London by Vaughn Tan, uh, who studies this kind of thing. He's a professor at I think UCL, um, but he basically said you know restaurants are going to have to change their idea of what uh, they are what you know how they serve customers they will still be able to and, and still will serve customers in-house and they will still be doing delivery of course um, but the other thing is even if you can fill a, a place so if you can fill a place at 50 percent capacity let's say that's the rule then obviously you're only making 50 percent of your turnover something's got to give with the rents and the rates in particular um, in order to make that business work um so, you know, that, that could be one of the things that sort of kills off a lot of restaurants is the government decides, oh, you can reopen, but then the landlords are, are not flexible enough to say, well, yeah, you need a rent reduction, and also the business rates probably won't go down. So if there's a way to uh, survive that kind of situation, it's going to, I think, be um, a mixture, obviously, of like the in-house uh, serving in-house customers and the delivery, but then also doing things like uh, having a retail side 
Um, one of the things I wanted to do, but I, I couldn't really set it up in time, was to have an online shop um, where we sell, you know, Japanese ingredients, drinks, because we have a, an off license as well, uh, meal kits, uh, merchandise, for lack of a better term, you know, books, tote bags, T-shirts, stuff like that. Um, whatever we could, whatever fits our, our brand. Um, and I think that when we reopen, we're going to, and every restaurant is going to have to do things like that because we just won't have, um, the numbers to, you know, from serving people in a traditional restaurant way. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that restaurants can do, but I think that the customers have to, um, have to change as well, like change their expectations. And, and mainly I think that they have to come to realize how precarious restaurant businesses are. Um, basically, I don't, I don't think there's any restaurant in the country who can really survive this without loans or grants or reimbursement from the government. The, the margins are just so thin. Um, and, and, and this just goes to show that, like, uh, if it's not this, it's something else that's sort of going to kill a restaurant, you know, because most restaurants just don't last very long. Um, and I just think that people need to be, they need to pay more for when they eat out. We've talked about how eating out is a treat and you, you, somebody does the washing up for you. Somebody brings your food to the table like, like they're your butler. Like it, it's, it's really nice to eat out, you know? And I think that a lot of people kind of take that for granted and they don't understand that if, if you're complaining, oh, it's, it's 12 pounds and eh, I can make it at home for blah, blah. It's like, yeah, but we got rent, we got staff. We got suppliers. There's so many costs in a restaurant. And if you start to squeeze the restaurant, then they have to start to squeeze. And then the staff gets underpaid and the suppliers get underpaid and the suppliers staff gets underpaid. And it goes all the way back to the farmers. And there's always going to be these sacrifices. And frankly, a lot of it, I think, is things that people don't want to know about. Like if you're saying, oh, why is this chicken seven pounds? It's like, well, OK, we can charge you seven pounds. Or guess what? You can't have the free range chicken that you want. You know, I'm sorry if I'm sounding angry, <laughs> but I think people need to realize that like re nobody's getting rich off restaurants. Like even look at somebody like Jamie Oliver, who has all these restaurants and you think, oh, they're, they're doing really well. They, they're successful. They're obviously making money. It's like, no, Jamie Oliver had to sink like 20 million pounds of his own money into his restaurant and it still didn't work out. Like <laughs> we're not, we're, restaurateurs are not greedy people who are trying to rob you. Like we're just trying to serve food and make a little bit of money to keep ourselves and our business going. And, and do you have any hope that because of the, hopefully the generosity, the tax breaks, the business rate uh, cancellations or reductions that are all happening, do you have any hope that that might stick and that, you know, the, these things that really chip away at the margins of small independent businesses might get a little bit easier. I mean, I would love to be that optimistic. I would love my, my when, when the government started announcing that they were going to start giving grants and, and reimbursement to, uh, to businesses and people, I was like, oh, my God, it's like, this is amazing that they're suddenly becoming socialists. And, and I thought this like best case scenario here is like this is the end of of disaster capitalism <laughs> like this is the end of the unregulated free market capitalism as we know it and, and there's going to be uh more support and and, and it's going to be better but i don't know i don't think that's going to happen is it i think it's i think there's going to be a period of, of assistance from the government and then it's going to go right back to being you know <laughs> tory business as usual sorry to be political but 
No, no, it's okay. Yeah. I was going to say my favorite tweet in this whole uh, COVID-19 crisis has been, I can't remember who did it, but it was just somebody going, if capitalism so great, why does socialism have to bail it out every 10 years? <laughs> and I was like, that's, that's how I feel as well. Yeah, yeah. We just extend all this support for small, independent, ethical businesses for, 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 the, for the all of time? Doesn't that seem like a good idea? I mean, you're right, though. I mean, this is, this is the most optimistic uh, outcome, I think, would be that the government implements some kind of universal basic income. And, um, well, that would be the main thing, actually. And, and, and that would take care of a lot, I think, because then people would have more disposable income. Um, restaurants could be more flexible with what they pay workers. I don't know. It, uh but I, I, I am not, I, I don't see that happening. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I was slightly facetious when I asked that, but I don't know. A little part of me thinks like, well, if we see this working, if we see it as a way to help small businesses get through, you know, the toughest crisis that has probably ever hit them, then surely there need to be lessons learned for in the good times as well. But we'll see. I would hope so. I would hope so. So I think from, from all three interviews, what I really realise is that we need to take a longer view and lots of the uh, the situation at the moment is, is bad, but further down the line is when the big, big changes are going to happen. That's when the acquisitions uh, and the insolvencies are going to happen. It's not going to be right now. It's when restaurants are either going to close or adapt. Um, and it's when you know mental health might get real bad because of that, because of insolvencies, because of job losses. Um, so that's really what I think we take away from this. Things aren't, aren't going to get better for a long time. No, we're really in an extended period of hibernation at the moment. Um, because of the funding from the government, people have been able to just sort of close the doors and, yeah, go to, go to sleep, so to speak. Um, so it will be when the funding stops and people need to start up again, um, the, the bad debts that they're in, the staffing problems and everything else that they're going to have to to face on the market isn't going to just when you know your local pub opens isn't going to be filled on a Saturday night again. It's going to be really it's going to be a staged growth um, or a step growth uh, and stepped openings as well. And sadly for Tim and well all of us really, pubs and restaurants will be one of the last to reopen again. Um, so it's how they all adapt to that, and it, and it won't be a hundred percent opening as well. Um, so they'll need to make the right amount of money on maybe half the capacity. So yeah, we'll all have to change our, our habits. Um, and really strong words from Tim at the end there when he was discussing about the value of, of the food you eat and you know, the beer that we all drink. It does cost a lot of money to, to make and produce and pay all the staff fairly. And it's something that we probably take for granted too often. Yeah, and I think, you know, I totally agree with his point that we need to pay more if we want good quality ingredients and food. Um, but I also, when I asked that question about whether he has any hope that this might create a step change in the way that businesses are taxed, um, I also think a huge amount of pressure has to go onto the government to look at the fact that it's entirely weighted against small businesses. The whole business rates calculations are weighted against small businesses. And until that changes, the the weight of support, much like where we're, you know, we've got charities supplying the NHS. Why the fuck are we having to do that? 
we shouldn't have to do that they should be well funded why should we be paying significantly more for a ramen when a huge issue is the business rates and the rent that tim is having to pay um there's not an equal burden put across society and i think that the covid crisis if there's one good thing that come out of it, can come out of it it's recognition of that and it's hopefully change as a result of that yeah and it, i mean there's been a lot of campaigns about supporting local because they're the ones that have been really affected by this all the big businesses the tesco's of the world they're actually doing very well at the moment but they will come out the other side but it's the local business and they're, they're finding it easier to get support like john west said yeah the, the small guys are struggling to get access to the funds that were literally created for the small businesses so any help that you know we're all doing is really appreciated by small businesses by all, all our local breweries and stuff that you, you can get your beers off and your food from that really does help them because at the moment it's a lifeline it's cash into their business that you know otherwise they just don't have yeah so do support your your local or indeed not local just small independent ethical businesses the guys that are struggling to get hold of any financing from the government or you know could be at risk of insolvency because if we want them to stick around we're going to have to support those and at the same time we have to balance that with looking after ourselves our mental health and our our drinking habits so you know it's no wonder lots of us are stressed uh, <laughs> when we've got to strike balances of life and death like that um but i hope that's given you some perspective uh helped you pick where you where your pounds are going to go and how you're going to react over the next couple of months um the bubble will as ever keep bursting bubbles all over the shop and we'll keep recording these in isolation um, and of course check out the craft beer channel where we're spreading the good news rather than the bad news over at youtube.com slash craft beer channel anything to add rob yeah if you need any good beer delivered straight to your front door you can get over to beermerchants.com as well uh we still got lots of fresh stock coming in so and you're supporting local and me. <laughs> podcast is brought to you by the nerds behind youtube's craft beer channel head to youtube.com slash the craft beer channel to watch this week's video and over 400 more exciting episodes if you love what we do please 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 do subscribe and even join our patreon at patreon.com slash craft beer channel love and beer